Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. So today we continue our series, and our series we're in is a question and answer series, so uh, you can ask questions anytime you want throughout the message. You can go to gotoquest.org slash share. If you're not already on one of the cafe free wireless wireless uh, uh, routers here, you can jump on that, and you can submit that at any time uh, throughout the message. At the end of the message, we'll take a couple minutes to deal with as many questions as we can. We like to switch things up in our series. The last series we did and finished a couple weeks ago was on spiritual gifts, talking about how we hear God and how we learn to minister uh, God's presence to other people. And now we're in a difficult to kind of the social and political topic series now uh, because, the, frankly, our lives in our lives, we have to deal with it all, don't we? And so we want to address the whole spectrum together as a congregation. And one of the biggest trending topics of this season, and especially of this last week among the presidential campaign, was what? Immigration and refugees, right? It's really big right now. And around this topic, I find there are such strong, polarizing feelings. All the way from complete isolationism to open the borders wide and let anybody in, and they argue that that's the only compassionate position to take and everything in between. In a very simple way, the big picture categories of this problem, complex problem, come down to this. What's the role of legal immigration in the U.S. and around the world? Who should we allow to immigrate? Is immigration a solution for poverty? That's a big question out there and a big motivation driving this for some. What should be expected of people who immigrate in terms of uh, becoming like the culture in which they immigrate? There's also another big category of questions that come out of this whole struggle with illegal immigration in the U.S. and, for that matter, around the world. It's increasing rapidly as well. What do we do in the U.S. with the just under 11 million undocumented immigrants? And when we start asking that question and talk about it, what usually comes out in the conversations are fear of terrorism and crime or fear of economic fear of, our, of, of jobs being taken away and done under the table instead of well and uh, fear of the burden on the welfare system by immigrants coming in, uh, illegal and illegal. And, and then that, that fact, is, uh, that's argued as a fact in, in our culture today. And, and as I got into some of the scholarly research, that's a very debated fact as to whether they actually create more burden than they give to uh, taxes. And anyway, it's also there's a very real problem associated with illegal immigration. If we take a hard-line stand on deportation, it means automatically that we start splitting up children from parents and husbands and wives and sending some of them back and some of them stay, and it just becomes a really messy social issue. And then there's... The whole question, should we construct a a wall? Is that even an effective solution, right? And then there's a whole other category that goes along with this topic as well. It's so complex and big. How to deal with the refugee crises that are going on around the world. I mean, think about it. Just among the 23 million Syrian nationals right now in the world, six in ten of them are displaced from their homes because of the ravages of war going on around them. 
Over 4 million, some say almost as high as 5 million, have fled Syria altogether and are in refugee camps outside of their country, with more than half of them being children. If you take the world as a whole right now, there are more than 60 million people who are refugees displaced from their home right now as we stand here today in the world. Think about that. That's 31 times the size of the greater metro area of Columbus. That's three times as many people as live in the whole state of Ohio are refugees someplace in the world right now displaced from their home. This topic can feel so overwhelming and heavy. I mean, this is definitely not a fuzzy, warm, feel-good type of a Sunday message and topic, is it? But these are just numbers, aren't they? Until we start asking ourselves questions like, what kind of fear, what kind of hardship would cause a doctor, a lawyer, a business owner, a teacher, a mechanic, a farmer, to grab what they can carry and leave behind their home, their land that may have been in their family for generations, centuries even sometimes, and their business, and sometimes even leave behind family members to flee. And see, when we start to see them, and look at the pictures and realize that if they dressed like us, they'd actually fit right in right here today with us, right in with us and our kids. Then the issue becomes more about numbers and it becomes this human tragedy of enormous proportions in our world right now. Ask yourself the question, what would cause me to risk walking through the, American, uh, the, through the Arizona desert just to get a, a minimum wage job or maybe even worse, if they paid me off the books. What would cause me to believe it was better for me to send my children, like this picture of a six- and a seven-year-old walking with their teenage uh, cousin who was found and detained in Arizona, in the Arizona desert, by themselves, to try to cross the desert, maybe to die on the way, to try to come and live in America. What would have to be going on in my life for me to do that with my children? And some of us, especially as parents, would say, I would never do that. And that's our answer to that question. But that lacks honest understanding. Because just from October of last year to February of this year alone, 28,000 unaccompanied minors were detained. That's just the ones that were detained at the border of the United States. 28,000 kids of parents who determined that their situations were desperate enough that they would make that choice. So what would your situation have to be like for you to do what you say you would never do? This is a huge, complex, heart-wrenching issue to which God speaks in significant and clear ways in the Bible. Many like to start at this place, of, especially with illegal immigration. They like to start at the chapter that we dealt with last week of Romans 12 and 13, particularly Romans 13, that talks about obedience to authorities. And so for many who start there on this topic, the answer is very simple. What part of illegal do you not understand, is what a lot of people say. 
And certainly the Bible does have a lot to tell us about being law-abiding citizens. And Romans 13 in context also says, As much as it is possible for you, live at peace with everyone. And the clear implication there is it's not always possible. And so people like Martin Luther King Jr. and many other great people throughout history have rightly also used this verse, this passage, to undergird their peaceful, nonviolent disobedience as a means of changing unrighteous, unfair, bad laws. Yes, there is a legal obedience discussion to be had with this whole topic of immigration, but biblically, that's also the last issue to deal with, not the first. So let's start at the first, and we're going to go through today kind of a checklist of some biblical principles that the Bible speaks very clearly about, even specifically to this topic today. And the first issue is this, the creation principle. God created all of humanity in his own image. We all started from one people, and every single one of us have immigrated. I mean, most archaeologists or historians will say that even the Native Americans immigrated at one time from Asia across the ice, bear, ice bridge or land, the land bridge across the Bering Sea, whatever it was back then. Likely some of you here have ancestors who immigrated because of desperation, because of famine, because of war, because of religious persecution. And some of you, unfortunately, ended up here because they were forcibly brought through slavery, and that is horrible. Some of you have family and friends who probably immigrated illegally. See, regardless of the circumstances, this principle reminds us all that we are created in the image of God, We are loved by God. We are all immigrants and relatives of immigrants and ultimately relatives of each other. Second principle that's really important, I call it the two great principles. Jesus is clear that our response to all people, especially in this issue, but in any issue, whether it's to kings or to fellow Christians, whether it's to people who are not Christian or people who are Christian, whether it's to those who are legal or those who are breaking the law or to those who treat us well or to those who treat us with contempt and persecution, our response is to be guided by the great commandment and the great commission, the two great principles. The great commandment is simply this. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, we live putting God's interests and will above our own, God's will above any human institution or relationship. And it goes on and says, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's just one of the many ways Jesus reiterates to us this idea that we refer to as the golden rule. And Jesus concludes that statement by saying this. He says, all the law, everything legal you can imagine that's good, and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So when it comes to immigration, refugees, whether they're legal or not, I think we need to listen to the arguments we make in our heads and verbally make personally about these issues. Are our arguments almost exclusively about self-protection, about motivated about fear of loss of our own security economically or physically or politically? Or are your thoughts and feelings first and foremost 
motivated by a sense of love and compassion for the individual, even if they're illegal and documented, in a way that you would personally want to be treated like if you were them. And I think that has to start with the question we asked earlier. By identifying with them, by ourselves thinking through what would cause them to risk their life and uproot their entire world to come and get a minimum wage job among us. The second great is the Great Commission. And it reads this. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's all peoples, all ethnicities, every people group, every tribe, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. As a Christian, relating to immigration, refugees, even illegal ones, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, and I asked myself this this last week, how are your politics, your words, your actions, the way you want to pursue justice towards this issue going to help that person experience the good news of Jesus and want to follow Jesus, the Great Commission? Notice the order in the Great Commission is this baptizing them, winning them to faith first, and then teaching them to what? Obey. It's always the priority of God's mission and God's love to save and care for and bring people out of their circumstance over our politics, our comfort, and our legal rules. And these are not great suggestions that Jesus makes. They're commands. These are the most core, attitude, perspective-orienting statements of how we are to think and feel and speak and relate and live as followers of Jesus in all of the Bible. Pew Research uh, confirms for us what I think most of us would think would be obvious, and that's this, that uh, most immigrants are very ripe to seeking God and finding a deeper sense of faith. And I can tell you personally, having worked as a consultant and with denominations around the, around the nation, that Christian among Christian denominations and organizations in the United States, the fastest growing churches and populations in all of America are among immigrants, first and second generation, coming to faith. And it begs the question of us, could God be bringing the world to our doorstep to see them come to faith? So one of the things we did in the last part of my last job that I was a part of helping start new churches is, is we tried to focus on starting new churches among immigrant populations and seeing, because we were seeing many people saved and there were easier churches to start because people were ripe and wanting something. And then we'd see lots of people saved. We'd see leaders developed. And then we'd take some of those leaders and actually challenge them to go back to their native lands where missionaries a lot of times couldn't go to reach their own countries. If you look at the statistics around Muslims coming to faith in, in Christianity and in Jesus, uh, 10 years ago, most of the statistics said that hardly anybody ever came to faith out of the Muslim culture, out of the Muslim faith to Christianity. But in the last 10 years of all the turmoil going, all the refugees, all the war and everything that's going on, we have seen the fastest rate of Muslims converting to faith in Jesus in all of history going on right now. 
A friend of mine in college, from college years, spent most of the last 15 years of her life in Afghanistan as a missionary. She recently returned, she's been back in the States because of health problems teaching in an inner city school in Houston right now. But she recently returned, like last month, from a, a trip to minister in some of the refugee camps in the Middle East. And part of the story that she got to tell from being there was the story of seeing baptisms of Muslim people coming to faith in Jesus in the river in the refugee camp. About 10 years ago, she emailed me one time when she was also back on a short time while she was living in Dallas then. And and she was working among the Muslim population in Dallas there. And the night before she emailed me asking for prayer, she she said she had been in this Muslim family's home talking to them about Jesus and praying with them. And the next morning, the man that she had been talking to about faith and praying with was arrested and convicted of terrorist charges. God wants us to love immigrants and refugees, whether they are legal or illegal. And the way Jesus talks about it is he says if we want to follow and we take up our crosses to follow Jesus and loving others so that many, many people would be saved and find the kind of life he wants them to experience. In fact, in the face of that kind of a definition of what it means to follow Jesus, and I started to have to ask myself this last, this last week this question. Why are, why are so many of the major questions and decisions we have going on in our culture today centered primarily on our self-protection? When Jesus says following him is about taking up our cross and following him and loving people even at the risk of harm or death personally to love and bring the gospel to people especially to those who are displaced because they are more open than most to the gospel. Again, I mean, I get it. The enormity of the need still begs the question, how much can we do even if we're really generous? And what's the best way to solve this problem? We're not even answering that yet in this, in this, in this message. But, but the core question of our heart needs to be settled first and in the right place before we can even begin to appropriately wrestle with what can we afford to do and what's the best thing to do to make the most difference. There's a third principle. It's called the sovereignty principle. There's a theme throughout all of the Old Testament that I think is around this issue that's captured best in a a New Testament passage in Acts 17, and it reads this way. It says uh, in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him, And perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. See, in the Old Testament, we see this theme lived out over and over again in the passages of the text of God raising up and tearing down rulers and kingdoms and peoples and appointing them land to live in for a time and establishing boundaries. And just as this verse says, and and the point of what God is doing when he's doing that is he's creating these environments where people will seek him and find him, where they'll 
turn from their sin to him and follow him into the good life that he wants them, that he created them for. How are we viewing the crisis before us right now as a world, especially when it comes to refugees and immigrants? Are we wishing Columbus didn't let in Muslim immigrants into our town? Are we... Is our first reaction to keep the southern border uh, uh, secure because of our fear of illegal immigrants who who might be criminals or, or whatever the reason? Or do we see these migrations that are going on as God possibly turning the pain of human-caused, desperately sinful choices that, have made, that, that are creating bloodshed and upheaval and poverty... And using that moment to create a movement of people who will be open to seek him so that he can solve and heal that problem in the process. Could this migration be something where God is wanting to see many, many people come to faith in Jesus? Not only the freedom and salvation of the refugees or immigrants, but also the answer to faith for Muslims around the world. Maybe even the answer for diminishing the threat of radical Islamic terrorism. If we as followers of Jesus would respond to this opportunity and see people come to faith, it might be that kind of an opportunity for us. Fourth, the principle of hospitality. We read last week in the context of Paul talking about our civic duties, this text from Romans 12, 13, and where Paul says we're to practice hospitality. Today, hospitality means putting on a good party with all the right nice things and the social skills so that your guests have a great time and really enjoy themselves, right? And they feel welcome. Biblical hospitality encompasses that, but it means so much more. In fact, if you go back to the origin of our word, English word, hospitality, way back hundreds of years ago, that word actually originally meant more of what the Bible's saying about hospitality. The original meaning was Hospitality is welcoming strangers. It's not just about your friends. It's not putting on a good party. It's welcoming into your midst strangers, foreigners, newcomers, people who are uncomfortable for you because they're different. It's welcoming them into your midst. Leviticus 19 says it concisely in the context of immigration and refugees. It says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt, reminding them that we are all immigrants at one point in our life. Love them as yourself. And when you hear that, you hear in that the same words that Jesus said when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And when Jesus talked about that love your neighbor as yourself, what what did his listeners do? His listeners objected to that, saying, well, then who is my neighbor? And the clear implication of that objection was strongly implying that some of these people are not my neighbors, to which Jesus told us the famous parable that we all know, the the story of the Good Samaritan. That Samaritan who was not one of them, that foreigner who was, wor- who, who, who was even worse than just a regular foreigner. He was one who was despised as degenerate. This Samaritan who stood for much of what was wrong in the world and embodied that 
And Jesus' conclusion to that story is, yes, that foreigner, that one you fear, that one you despise, who stands for everything you're against, that person is your neighbor. Love them as you would love yourself. Throughout the Bible, we also see the law describing how you would even, as in the Old Testament, travelers, strangers coming through, you would be obligated to give them shelter for the night and to care for them in that process. And the question is, are we generous and hospitable to strangers, especially the newcomer, especially the foreigner, especially the different one residing among us? Deuteronomy 10 says it even more pointedly, this time speaking from the perspective of how God feels, saying, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, and the earth, and everything in it. And notice, if you haven't already noticed from the previous verses, in a number of places, in fact, almost every place God talks about this issue in the Bible, he starts out by saying this. He says he reminds everybody that he's the owner of everything. He's the creator. We don't own what we have. We are simply stewards of what we've been given. And the question we're left wrestling with, specifically in the context of this topic, all throughout the Bible, is the question, are we stewarding our time, our finances, our intellect, our relationships, our gifts, in a way God, the owner, wants us to steward them? Because they are not ours. They are his. And the passage goes on and says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you Yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. And isn't it interesting that he ends this passage talking about how we're supposed to love them as ourselves with this topic and this discussion of where our fear is focused in life, telling us we are to fear him more than we fear someone who's different more than we fear the problems that could possibly come with illegal immigration or refugees or immigrants or, or, or more than we fear for our own lives in this process that we might let terrorists come in. You see, when you study the history of immigration in the United States and public opinion, the studies all, all say that for the last 150 years, the absolute dominant theme has been fear of people who are different. I mean, even a hundred years ago, you can see this in the history books, and many of you will remember this. The people who were despised and fear of uh, uh, despised and, and feared as immigrants were who? They were the Italians and the Irish immigrants who were flooding the shores of the U.S. a little over a hundred years ago. And yet today, we celebrate St. Patty's Day, and we think it's trendy to go to an Irish pub and an Italian restaurant. It's fun to go to for a relaxing evening. And the question is, were our fears overblown back then? Yes. Are they overblown now? You know what, though? 
I'm not even sure that's the focus God really wants to be asking in one sense. Is the focus of your fear on whatever that person brings even the point of what God's asking us here? Because God corrects our perspective saying, Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Fear Him. Make His heart, His plan, His priority in life. Not your own sense of safety, comfort, and sameness, the priority of life. And the text goes on and says, Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. Meaning, make up your mind. Cast your decisions. Vote. Make the principles your life stands by in regard to immigration and refugees something that you do in His name that holds fast to His priorities and values in your life. And then the text concludes going on once again, reminding us that we too were once immigrants, bringing us back again and again and again to this place of treating others as you would wish to be treated. See, I think only when we check off in our hearts and get our hearts right around these first four principles, the creation principle, the two greats principle, the sovereignty principle, the hospitality principle, are we even ready to deal with Romans 13 and the justice with grace principle where we start talking about obedience to laws. And even when we start talking about obedience to laws, I think at least for us in in the United States right now, in our circumstance, especially because we have a representative government, we need to start by taking ownership for lack of legal enforcement of the laws and how that has in and of itself encouraged illegal immigration and how we have turned a blind eye to this issue for so many years, creating such a big, big, complex issue to solve. It is so easy to blame our politicians. But the reality is, we vote those politicians into office every few years. And we keep voting people in who won't tackle the complexities of this issue with a humane, gracious, and just way. So after 30 years lack of enforcement of law of most of the laws on the books in, in any kind of significant way, we have a royal mess that we've created in this country for ourselves, for those who are undocumented, for their families, for our whole culture. One so complicated that the majority of Americans say deportation of undocumented immigrants is completely logistically impossible and financially insane for us to do. For a large percent of the people here without documentation, again, to deport them would mean we would be breaking up marriages, we would be breaking up children from their parents and and, and forcing parents to leave, and it just becomes a painful mess. The Bible does talk about the rights of nations to establish laws. It even has some indication that there were national immigration laws that you could see reflected in the Old Testament where there were permissions needed to enter a foreign country, though the indication is not clear enough for us to equate those laws to how we should do our laws today in our setting today. And there's vigorous debate over this. If you want to look at this and you love to read, there's a guy named Dr. James Hoffmeyer from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's an Old Testament professor and archaeology professor. He, he would argue that the Bible does make a distinction between legal and illegal immigrants. 
And he would say that the passages I've read to you today would refer only to legal immigrants, and we would not have to treat illegal immigrants with the same way we've talked about today. On the other hand, there's a Dr. Daniel Carroll, who's an Old Testament scholar and a theological and historical specialist in immigration who teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary, and these guys like to debate each other, who'd say that the words in the passage we read today apply to all immigrants, legal or illegal. Both of them have recent scholarly books written on this subject. In the end, though, I don't think it really matters whether Hoffmeyer is right on the particular words in the, in the Hebrew and how they apply here, or if Carol's right. It doesn't really matter all that much because of the overriding principles of creation, of the great commandment, of the great commission, and the other ones we've talked about today. I think these legal arguments take the lower rung after we've answered all those other ones. Because those other arguments that we've talked about, the Great Command and Great Commission, are, have really a whole lot more to do with how we actually live out our faith on a daily basis in the regard to this issue than the definition of some of these words. So let me make just a couple concluding marks before we take some questions. The Bible clearly does indicate it's acceptable for us to have laws and to enforce those laws in regard to immigration. But the Bible is largely silent on what those national laws should look like, except for this. Those national laws must not be racist or oppressive. They must not violate the creation principle or the great commandment principle. Our way through this as a nation, if we're going to be consistent with what the Bible has, has to say, as I said before, it has to start with at least us taking partial ownership for our failed policies and not placing all the blame for undocumented immigrants on those who are here against the laws of immigration. We can't place all the blame on them, but that doesn't mean either that a Christian response has to mean amnesty. It could mean amnesty, but it doesn't have to mean amnesty. That's an area where the Bible would leave room open for disagreement. All that the Bible would say on that is that whatever we do, in our response as a government must be gracious and it must be humane justice. And we as a church need to separate our anger and our frustration over this issue that's directed at the government and all the problems caused by the lack of enforcement from the people themselves so that we can learn to treat even illegal, illegal immigrants and refugees coming in legally in a way that we seize the opportunity for good and care and kindness in the gospel that God has placed in front of us. When I was working on the West Coast, I worked with Hispanic churches some, and I worked with one for a while that was in San Diego. And uh, this church would range, uh, given the month, between 150 and 500, depending on the inflow and outflow of illegal immigrants coming through town. All up and down the West Coast, we saw immigrants, legal and illegal, coming to faith regularly in masses. And we instructed, as a way to get around this, to figure out how this looked biblically, we instructed our churches to reach and care for as many people as you can, regardless of documentation, because the mission of Christ comes first. We are not law enforcers. That's not our responsibility. But we do have a responsibility of followers of Christ to care, to love, and to make a difference 
and to follow Jesus in that. But we also had a lot of pastors who were coming up through the ranks of those churches that were being raised up, and some of them were undocumented. We basically said, no, if you're going to be a pastor, you've got to live the standard of Romans 13 and abide by the law. So we would not let somebody pastor or plant a church who was undocumented. We would try to advocate and help them become legal, but we would not let them lead as a lead pastor in a church unless they did that. That's one of the ways we worked around this in a practical way in our own lives. Additionally, the Bible doesn't give guidance on whether we should throw the doors open wide to immigrants and have, have no quotas on refugees or immigrants. It doesn't say what we should do or whether there's another better solution to meet that immigration and refugee need. But the Bible does call us to love and care and it demands that we be part of the solution as followers of Jesus. So maybe you've already put some questions in. We'll try to take as many as we can right now. In fact, I have the guy who just took over me for me from church planting on the West Coast texting me during, the message, my, during my message saying, I'll bet you're preaching right now. He's running church planting on the West Coast where I used to be doing that. Is there a difference between how we respond as a nation and how we should respond as an individual? Kind of like there's the same as there's a difference between how the government has capital punishment, but somebody, uh, uh, one of us doing capital punishment would be a vigilante and not correct. And yes, I would say there is a certain amount of difference. We can't force our government here to be a religious monarchy of sorts, but we can, as voters, influence our representatives to live by the great commandment and by an honoring of all people. And so, yes, we're not the government. We don't represent it. You can vote for... If you, did, if you believe that a higher level of deportation is what is the right thing to do, then you could theoretically vote for that, but your responsibility is to still love that undocumented person you're asking to be deported in a way that if they get deported, they feel absolutely loved by you. Now, obviously, we can't touch all 11 million. You touch the people in your life that you have around you, maybe the people who mow your lawn, possibly. Um, Do you think that God is bringing in immigrants into the U.S. so the church can evangelize them and spread the gospel through bringing in the nations into our nations? Absolutely. I think that's exactly what that sovereignty principle is saying. God causes people to move around the world and uproot at times. And it's not that he causes, God's not causing the devastation in Syria. Humanity's sin is causing that. What God is doing is working in that situation to bring good through creating a movement of migration that allows his gospel to go forward and heal the sin that caused all the crud that caused that migration to happen. Why is the church failing to make disciples in the immigrant countries? Um, so I would say that that is um, that's an interesting question, but I would say the church is not failing. I would say there are countries that are harder than others. 
to go into uh, Russia right now, for instance, with all the repressive religious laws they've just voted, they just voted in, it's very hard to send a missionary in there, and it's very hard to not get put in jail again now in Russia if you decide to share the gospel publicly with people. So there are obviously limitations to that, and there's limitations of that among especially the Muslim community. But we can also look again at the Muslim community and see that the trend for people coming to faith in those countries is going through the roof of so many people finding Jesus and leaving a more radical kind of Islam behind. There was even an interview I, I saw a couple of weeks ago of a guy who used to be a full-on terrorist who became a Christian, who wrote a book and is ministering to people who are radicalized right now, trying to help them come out. And that, that begs the question we talked about earlier. Is God bringing this to our doorstep to a certain extent And is that part of the solution to solving this problem of radical Islam in the world? Because he's bringing people who are now more open to being reached, like my friend praying for that person the night before. He got arrested. Can we see God solve this because of the gospel impact happening in the world right now? How do you deal with differing views from the Bible, the areas of Scripture where God has not made clear the right or wrong choice? So... Two things, because I brought up one. There's this whole debate in the word. There's this word ger that's, that, that uh, in, the, in the Hebrew and gur, which is one's noun, one's verb, I forget which one. And uh, it's used over 160 times in the Bible talking about refugees and immigrants. And the one guy argues that this word is only for legal, and there's another word for illegal immigrants, and there's an argument over both. I tend to, when I have two reputable, both conservative Bible-believing scholars, and one is trying to push uh, one view that's not widely held, I tend to go with the more conservative one. On this one, I would say that I would that the word probably applies to everyone, and that's the way I just approach it more conservatively. Because the other thing is, the person who's pushing the idea that this only applies to immigrants has a little bit of this tone of separation, which is not in accordance with what the creation principle or the great commandment principle, is it? If you're trying to make this group a group that you don't have to treat kindly, there's something wrong, isn't there? And, uh, and so, again, part of this issue, some of the people when we started this issue, this topic also were really afraid I was going to tell you exactly how to vote. And the, re- the reality is we all need to wrestle with these principles and figure out where that, where that leads us. And that might lead us, some of us, in very different places in our voting and there's freedom in that, so don't feel a pressure that you have to vote a certain way. But you do have to wrestle with, how is this going to be loving? How is this going to respect their dignity? How is this going to be gracious in justice? Not just just, but gracious in justice. And if you come up with an answer that's different than me, go for it. I don't think the Bible says that you're wrong and I'm right in that one. Okay? But I do want to end today with this. Again, go ahead and come on up, worship team. But I want to end today with us praying because this is really an issue that I felt like for myself going through this, I felt like I haven't maybe even thought about this enough. It was really good and challenging for me to prepare this message. And I feel like there's probably more of a response that I need to make and that we need to make as a church to this. And I'll I'll just be honest, I don't know what that response looks like. We got second largest number of Somali immigrants in our, in our community. Does it mean that God wants us to expand our tutoring program to impact more of them? What does it mean? I don't know what it means. But for all of us, there is a response. Maybe it's 
the person at work or the person who serves you at work or who you know is undocumented and you need to treat them different. You need to make them a friend. You need to, tr- you need to invite them into your home. I don't know what it is. But would we just take a moment, because I suspect if you're like me, there are some areas of my pol- political views that I would say violated some of these principles. I was too hard, too uncaring, too harsh. And would you just take a moment to repent of that and then just ask God, what do you want me to do and what do you want our church to do to seize this opportunity with immigrants and refugees even among us in our community or overseas? Just take a moment and pray on your own on that. Lord, on behalf of myself and and the church as a whole, Lord, I do repent for the way that sometimes we've allowed our fears to trump our reverence of you and our trust of you. For the way we have allowed our fears to keep us from being people who are truly willing to take up our cross and risk danger to show your kindness and your good and your gospel to others. Lord, I pray that you would lead us as a people, as individuals, and as a, as a people who make up Quest to be a part of answering the gospel for the immigrants around us and the refugees around us. And that you'd help guide us in our votes, that you'd help guide those that we vote for to bring humane, just laws and enforcement to bear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. 